Well, have you ever sat in a service where, where you would say God showed up? I have too, Corky. Maybe, uh, maybe you didn't expect anything out of the ordinary whenever you, whenever you came, but whenever the, when the message was, was, was given and the pastor began to preach, it, it was like God was speaking to you. I mean, you sat there in the crowd, and as you listened, you thought, I mean, how does that preacher know that about me? I mean, it's like he can read my mind. It's, it's like he's, his, his finger's pointing right at me. He's, uh, he's, he's noticing me, and you may even get, may even get nervous, and every time his eyes, uh, uh, land on you, you think, uh, what does he know? Well, you, you feel like that there's, there's no place to hide, and the message just grabs you, and it, it, it won't, won't let you go. You may even try to, to, um, think of other things, but, but it, you're just arrested by, by the Word of, of God. Well, I'm sure you know this, but, but the pastor doesn't have the ability to, to read your mind, but, but God does, right? You're experiencing the Word of God doing its powerful work whenever you're, whenever you're, you're in a situation like that. The Bible declares about itself that it's the, a discerner of the thoughts and intents of your heart. That passage in, in the book of Hebrews in chapter 4 goes on to say it's like a, it's like a two-sided sword. It means that there's, there's no dull edge where you can get away from its sharp insight. It, it pierces even to the very heart of, of every matter. It, it doesn't just go skin deep, as they say. It, it, it just it penetrates all the way down to the very core of our being, of who we are and, and what we're thinking and, and, and what no one else knows. God does. And, and God, through the Holy Spirit, applies His Word to our, to our hearts. And after Jesus steps forward and, and takes his role as this substitute for, for sinners, he associates with this baptism of repentance with, with, with John, um, and then he is anointed for his, his work as the, as the Messiah, as the coming one through the, through the Holy Spirit, and you hear this voice from heaven where God the Father says, in, in him, this is my beloved Son, and in Him I am I'm completely satisfied, I'm, I'm well pleased. Then Jesus steps on the scene and begins to, to preach. And He begins staking His claim as, as the King. And, and He's preaching the gospel of God and, and the kingdom is at hand. And the kingdom is at hand because the King has, has come. And, and he's, he's proclaiming that. He's claiming authority through, through His preaching. Just like today. God demonstrates His authority through His Word and through the preaching of His Word. And, and the last time that we saw how Jesus demonstrates that authority through calling His disciples. He's, here were men, they were going about their business, they, they had heard of, of Jesus. We know that from some of the other Gospels. They're fishing, they're mending their nets, they're with their father, at least the, the sons of Zebedee were. And Jesus just... It with divine command says, follow me. And they drop everything and they follow him. It's a demonstration of his authority. As he commands, he has authority, he takes authority over, over men and, and the disciples follow him. And, well, in the passage that we're going to look at this morning, Jesus demonstrates his authority again, but this time it's over demons. It's over demons. And that authority comes through his word. The, the, 
the key phrase in, in, the, in the calling of the disciples where he demonstrates his authority over men is, is follow me. And in the passage we're going to see today, the key word is be silent. He, he commands and the demons, or in this case the demon, obeys. So I want you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. And we're going to begin reading in the 21st verse. And we'll read through verse 28. Jesus shows up at a worship service. And there's an unmistakable response whenever, whenever, he, whenever he's there. And there are really four scenes that, that, that you're, you're reading here that we're coming upon when he, he goes into, into Capernaum on the Sabbath. And in a 24-hour period, these next four scenes happen all in, in one day. And it's, a, it's obviously a very busy day. And every one of them reveals the power of God at work. Jesus demonstrates his authority in the synagogue here in, in this public ministry. Then he'll leave the synagogue, immediately go into Peter's home, and he'll demonstrate his authority there in private and healing Peter's mother-in-law. And then he demonstrates that amongst the masses in healing and casting out demons. And this whole evening ends, this whole Jewish day ends with, with Jesus being alone with his with his father. And, and what's clear in every one of these scenes, I want to emphasize this, is, is the authority of Jesus through his word. Christ's preaching was potent. That's probably an understatement. It was his teaching. It, his, his preaching was, was powerful. He spoke as one who had authority because he did. He was God. And his preaching was effectual. It, it produced results, as you're going you're gonna to see today. And I'll say to you, even before you read the Word, the Bible makes a claim on your life. If you're sitting here this morning, whether you're a believer or not, God makes a claim on your life. And this Word that would be preached this morning, it claims something. It claims an authority, not beside you, not something for you to consider. It claims authority over you because God is your Creator. And He speaks... And you listen, you will respond in some way this morning. You will accept it or you will reject it, but the Bible makes a claim. And the Bible also exposes you. That's one of the reasons that when I was an unsaved man, I didn't want to be around preaching. I was okay with, with, with individuals that, that may not have been too salty or, or, or lessons that may not have been too convicting, but I didn't want to sit under the Word of God, the, the, the powerful uh, preaching of the Word, where, where, where the Bible was rightly divided because it would expose me. But the blessing is that while it makes claim and exposes you, the Bible also has the power to change your life. Do you believe that? I know you do. I know you do because if you're a believer, you've experienced it. But, but, but think about that afresh. Because I think it's possible to be a Christian for a while, to read your Bible and do your daily devotionals and, and hear the Christmas story for the umpteenth time and, 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 and let it lose some of its thunder. The Bible has the ability, it has the power to change your life. It does. God, God's Word creates and it convicts. It tears down and it builds up. And that's exactly what you're going to see, or we're going to see in the Gospel of, of Mark today. And you can't listen to it without responding one way or the other. So let's read in verse 21. 
It says they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he, that's Jesus, entered the synagogue and began to teach. And they were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority, not as the scribes. And just then, there was a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, or be quiet, and come out of him. And throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. They were all amazed, so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately, the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding regions or districts of Galilee. Jesus enters the synagogue, and immediately he begins teaching. And when he does, several responses take place. The the disciples, there's a response that's, It's not really the focus, but it's there. The disciples were with him. The same men that he called are with him. And it says in verse 21, they went into the synagogue. And so they are affirming his authority by being with him. Religious people were amazed at his authority when he began to teach. The demons were terrified at the authority of his presence And then there's this bewildered crowd that was amazed at his ability. And one of those responses will take place today. A response is always expected whenever you encounter Jesus. In this very room, there are disciples, there are attenders, and there are even demons. And as the Word of God is proclaimed, the same responses will take place. And you're either going to be astonished by him, alarmed if you haven't accepted him, or you'll receive his word and it will will change your life. So here would be the outline, a very easy outline this morning as you look at this passage. There are three responses to Christ's compelling word in this scene, and, and these are universal. Religious people were astonished at the truth in verses 21 and 22. Unseen demons were terrified over his presence in verses 23 and 24. And then this bewildered crowd was was amazed at his ability in verses 25 through, through 28. Let's look at this first one, the religious people being astonished at the truth. Mark says in verse 21, Jesus goes into Capernaum. Immediately in the Sabbath, he he enters the synagogue and began to teach. And they were amazed. Those who heard were amazed at his teaching. And he tells us why. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. They heard Jesus teach. And when he taught, it was with authority. And it was not what they were used to. It was not as the the scribes had had taught. This village that Jesus enters is, we call, 
Capernaum, but it's actually two words together, Kafer Nahum. It means the village of Nahum. And if you're ever around uh, someone who speaks Hebrew or if you ever go to Israel, you'll, you'll hear them pronounce it that way. The village of Nahum. And the, the synagogue that Jesus goes into is the gathering place for for the Jews since the Babylonian captivity, as the Jews are scattered. And we saw last week, God's going to make fishers of men, and he's going to make shepherds of his sheep. And the fishers of men are going to cast the, the net of the gospel, and it's going to catch men in that net. And, and part of the, the, the individuals that are going to be caught is the scattered Jews. They're going to be drawn back, and then the nations are going to be drawn in as well. And since this scattering took place in the Babylonian captivity, they don't have a temple to worship in. And so synagogues were, were established. They couldn't go to the temple, so they start gathering together. And when about ten families were, uh, were present in a location, they would have started an official synagogue. And the Talmud tells us that, that in Jerusalem alone, even though there's a temple in Jesus' day, there's about 500 synagogues. And Capernaum would have been a, a, a good-sized city. There's various estimates on how many people were there. But there's a synagogue. There's still a synagogue standing there today. You can go to the very place where the foundation of this synagogue, where Jesus went in, in this scene, and it's there, the, the foundation is. And as I was preparing this morning, I, I, was, I found an interesting uh, statement one commentator said Luke 4:16 says that it was Jesus custom to go into the synagogue and if Jesus deemed it important to go to weekly worship we should also <laughs> A typical service in the synagogue would have involved prayer, the reading of the law and a sermon by a rabbi or a scribe, but the synagogues didn't have a didn't have a set teacher like like we do. Instead their custom was called the freedom of the synagogue. And if, if they would read the law and then allow somebody to expound on it, and if a guest would show up, he got the honor, and that's how Jesus ends up in this place of, of teaching. And as the, the Torah is read, people are listening, Jesus begins to teach, and when he does, these religious li- listeners are arrested by the truth. Look at verse 22. It says they were amazed. The word means astonished. They were at a loss for words. They were knocked out of their senses. It comes from a word meaning to be stricken, to be, to be, to be dumbfounded, to be like hit with a blow. You may think about uh, what, it is, what it is like whenever you see a football player get a, get a hit and he's He's, he's just, he's, he's almost knocked out. It, it's like a mental concussion. That's what this word means. If, if you would use a modern day phrase, it, 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 they, their minds were blown. That's literally what the word, word means. And Mark tells us exactly why. Verse 22, Jesus taught as one who had, an author, had authority and not as the scribes. Now, the teaching that they were used to when the scribes taught was 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 information to cons- to consider it wasn't compelling authority it wasn't something that made a claim on their on their life that's what did he mean here by he spoke as one having authority because the scribes had no authority what they did was just quote other rabbis and they gave they gave potential options various interpretations and 
and, and really, the more the more eloquent they waxed, the, the more they thought that they, they had done their, their job. But Jesus' teaching was different. He taught as one who had authority. And when he does, their minds were, were blown. You ever experienced that? I mean, when you hear the Word of God, you, you don't just hear information to consider, but truth that compels you. I mean, it lays hold on you, and it won't let you go. I mean, you, you think about it long after the sermon is over. I thought about a specific time whenever I was, was sitting somewhere in a, in a service. This was back in, in West Virginia, and... And the the sermon was about was about forgiveness, and and what was pressed was you should not have any enemies. As best as your ability, be at peace with all men. And my mind began to think about: Did I have any enemies? Was was there anyone that could hold claim against me? Had I ever offended someone that I'd never made that right? And before the Lord, I, I was rifling through my mind, and I could not think of of, of anyone. And then a man came to my mind. He was actually a, a, a young man. And it came to my mind about two or three years before I was, was saved. The only person I could come up with was, a, was an individual that I got in a fist fight with as a, as a young boy. And I thought, you know what? I've never made it, made it right with that, with that guy. And then, of course, I argued with myself. I mean, you're crazy. I mean, you're an unsaved guy. He's not even going to know what in the world you're talking about. He doesn't care about you. He's not thinking about you. And I tried to avoid it, and I tried to avoid it, and, and that just kept, that, that verse just kept coming to my mind. It arrested me. It would not, it would not let me go. And I finally relented. And I looked for him, and I couldn't find him. And for at least a week, I looked for this man, and I finally found his, his, uh, his address, and I drove to his house, and I remember going, I don't even know if this is where the guy lives, he's in a trailer, I step on the property, and there's this, there's this big chow, this dog that's there, and I'm thinking, I don't want to go knock on the door, and the dog's barking at me, there's no cars in the driveway, it took me about three days after I, I found him, and I called him up, and, I, I, and his name was Andy, and I said, Andy... I'm Brian Farrell. You may remember me, but um, I've gotten saved. And I was sitting under a sermon, and I was just thinking about how, um, you know, I'm not, I did wrong to you, and God convicted me about that. And this may seem silly to you, but, but I just want to ask your, your forgiveness. And there's this long pause on the, on the, the other end of the line, and uh, the man's weeping. And he said, Brian, about a year ago, I came to Christ as well. And here I was, I was petrified to call him. I was like, this guy's going to think I'm crazy. And then he starts telling me about how he got saved. And we had this beautiful conversation on the phone. And, and my point is, the, the Word of God laid hold of my heart and would not let me go until I obeyed. But when I obeyed, there was blessing. Blessing that I could have never considered or or thought about it. Have you ever experienced that? That's the authority of Christ in His Word. It doesn't permit debate. It places rightful claim on your soul. It, it confronts you and demands to be heard. And that's what the people were sensing as Jesus was teaching. 
His teaching was taking claim over their hearts and their lives. This is the exact same response that's found whenever Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew seven twenty-eight and and twenty-nine. Looking at Nathan because that's his dissertation area, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes, Matthew seven, twenty-eight and 29. And sadly, here in the synagogue, they weren't used to that. One man said the synagogue had ritualistic services without rebirth. They had rules without relationship. They had sermons without the Holy Spirit. But Jesus' teaching demanded a response. And I'm afraid a lot of people listen to sermons the way that the scribes taught. You come and you listen as if it's something for you to consider, as if it's something for you to take or leave and not receive it as the Word of the living God and demands upon your soul. I mean, you decide whether you want to do it or whether you don't want to do it, whether it's truth or not, based on your own personal agreement. I told you a story about a man at, uh, at Red House that turned his hearing aids down during the sermons because he didn't like the pastor's preaching. He'd leave them up during the singing. He would turn them off whenever the announcements were there because the pastor gave the announcements, and then he would turn it off during the sermons. Why in the world he stayed in the church, I have no idea. But I've actually heard people say, now nah, I tuned that sermon out because uh, it's not what I believe. You ever heard somebody say that? It really doesn't matter what I believe. It doesn't matter what you believe. It matters what the Word of God says. And you better consider what the Word of God says because it's not just information. This, Jesus is not a, a, a talking head on TV. He's God. And His Word is, is, has authority. And that authority is on your life, whether you acknowledge that authority or not. It demands to be heard and it makes a claim. And I might add, that's the same authority that you wield and that the disciples would wield whenever they would share it with others. I mean, Jesus is modeling for them something here. The teaching of the disciples, the, the teaching that they would do as fishers of men would bring a similar response. They, that, that's preaching the gospel. When you share Christ with, with people, you're not, you're not sharing, hey, uh, let me share a potential idea for you to consider to put it alongside the many other options that you have in your life. That's, that's not witnessing. You share the voice of their Creator. He's, he's calling you to hear and to repent of your rebellion and obey His, his call. That's the difference between presenting information and presenting the, the Word of God. And the religious people could tell that there was something different But the demons knew exactly what that difference was. If you would, at verse 23, the next scene, verse 23, just then or immediately, as he's teaching and the people are astonished, there was a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he he cried out. Cried out because they knew who he was. They knew about their judgment, and they knew his, his perfection. You see, the Bible makes a, compl- a claim on your life. The Bible also exposes you. And these unseen demons here were terrified 
over his presence. And they were exposed. It says in verse 23, they cried out. Jesus doesn't speak to them specifically. He doesn't preach a message about demons. He doesn't call them by name. He doesn't do some incantation. He doesn't perform some exorcism or some ritual. They are simply responding to the teaching that Jesus was doing. And the, 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 the religious people were astonished, and the demons sense something. They're exposed by it, and they shriek. That's what the word means. It means to, to shout with strong emotion. It was the screams of someone suffering, someone traumatized, someone panicked. The religious people's minds were blown and the demons panic. And the main purpose of Jesus' ministry was not casting out demons, and that's one of the significance here. It wasn't the main purpose of his ministry wasn't healing. It was proclaiming the gospel. And as he does, the demon in this man responds. I want you to notice the difference in the response of the people and, and this and this demon. The demons respond differently because they know exactly who Jesus is and the people don't. It's interesting. I credit MacArthur for this. I want to take credit for something that wasn't mine. But it's interesting that Mark starts, as he starts the gospel, the only ones who know who Jesus is are the demons. The disciples obey his authority, but but they're not totally aware of of who he is yet. They follow him, but, but they don't know. I mean, the people sense his authority, but they don't know the source of it. But he's God, the Holy One. John the Baptist points to him, but he later doubts. And the demons know exactly who Jesus is and his authority and his power to judge them. And they fear. They panic. They call him the Holy One of God, and they say... Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, in verse 24, the Holy One of God. The Holy One of God, His his character, His attributes, His perfections. So what's the point? The people should have been like the demons. This is a group of religious, unsaved people, and they're simply astonished. But they're just as unsaved as the demons are. And the demons know who Jesus is, and their response to, to the fact that God is speaking and standing in their midst is absolute terror. And that's exactly the response that these religious, unsaved people should have had. Amazement doesn't save you. Being astonished by God and the wonder of what He would do doesn't save you. Receiving the grace of God and receiving the truth does. If you knew who Jesus was, you wouldn't treat His Word as lightly as you do. If I was reminded on a regular basis of the character of God and His holiness and His sinlessness and His absolute power and His ability to not only kill the body but cast the soul into hell, I wouldn't treat Him lightly. You remember the moment that you realized that? You remember the moment. Not that you wanted the consequences of your life to go away, but do you remember the moment when you realized there was something in you that sensed it was God who was speaking to you, when someone witnessed to you, when you sat under a a sermon. And you realized that this is not just the teaching of a man. This is not just philosophy. There is something different 
there is something that is speaking to the very core of who I am. I'm hearing this in a very different way. That's the Word of God exposing. And when sinners realize who Christ is, they, they fear. It's part of the, the process of salvation. Do you remember the condemnation in Romans chapter 3? Where it says there's, you know, there's, there's none that understands, there's none that seeks after God, they've all gone out of the way. Do you remember how that, that, that picture of our depravity ends? There is no fear of God before their eyes. Sinners set under the preaching of the Word. They hear about the claims of Christ. And there's no terror. There's no fear. They think it's just a sermon that they can sit there and take it or leave it. And then comes the moment when the Holy Spirit of God does His work and He opens their eyes to God. And when they see God, they immediately understand their condition and fear strikes their heart. You heard the statement, don't try to scare people into hell, or into heaven, out of hell. You don't need to worry about that. You should fear hell, and you should fear God. And that happens when the Word of God exposes you. And the Spirit convinces us of our sin, and His righteousness, and the judgment coming. We, we get very afraid, and, and we should be. And the demons know it's Jesus, and they scream... And they blow their cover. Did you ever think about this? You, you may have just read over this. Why is a demon-possessed man in the synagogue in the first place? I mean, there's a, you know, yeah, you run into a demon-possessed man alongside of the road, or, you, or he's the, he's the, the demon-possessed man of the, of the Gadarenes. He's living amongst the, uh, amongst the tombstones in the caves. But this man is in the synagogue. What, what is he doing there? How did he get there to begin with? It's an odd place to find him, or is it? Demons are invisible, but they're not invisible to God. They're demons, and I'm not trying to be weird and, and, and make you get out, you know, some uh, incantation or holy oil. They're demons in this very place this morning. The Bible says that, that in the church, in the gathering of the church, they're saved and they're lost. They're wheat and they're tares. The angels look into the sermons, or into the services. You've heard the statement, whenever you're looking for the devil in the church, don't forget to look behind the pulpit. They're demonized individuals standing behind the pulpit, denying the Word of God and denying the Gospel and denying how you can come to Christ. Demons are invisible to us, but they're not invisible to God. They're active. They're all around us. And yet they're undercover. Do you ever wonder why there's so much demonic activity during the time of, of Jesus? It's not because there are more demons that come out of the woodworks wherever Jesus is there. There are demons before Jesus. There are demons now. The, the reason that there's so much demonic activity, it's not demonic activity. It's, it's demonic uh, uh, exposing. Jesus is there. And because He's there, they unveil themselves. They're terrified. They respond in some way. They blow their cover. And that's what's happening here in the synagogue. This is a religious man who's attending the services. And everybody thinks he's nice and dressed well and everything's wonderful. And Jesus comes in and begins to teach and proclaim the truth. And when he does, they freak out. And they blow their cover. And look at what they say. They do that because they know what's coming and they know who he is. Notice what they say here in verse 24. What business do we 
have with you? What business do you have with us? It's plural. Now, does that mean that there are more demons in this man? I don't think so. It's possible, but I don't think so. I think that that the evidence of that's what they say next. Have you come to destroy us? Plural. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The question, this is not a question, it's a statement. They're saying, what do we have to do with you? You have no business with us yet. That's what they meant. The response is terror and their words express resistance. They said, have you come to destroy us before the time? And the demons know very well that their time is coming collectively. God's not going to judge individual demons. All of the demons are already condemned, and all of them will be judged at the, at the last day. And the scream is because they know their condemnation as a group. Matthew eight twenty nine says, And behold, they cried out and said, What do you have to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to tor- torment us before the time? The demons know they're headed for judgment. And that's what this, this, this demon is saying and why he's terrified. Here's one place where men ought to listen to demons, ought to take a lesson from demons. <laughs> if you really knew who was speaking to you through the Word today, if you really understood the judgment, if you really understood your, your condition, you really understood the absolute purity and perfection of Christ, you would be very afraid if you, if you were not saved. But the good news is, the very same word that exposes you and it strikes fear in your heart also has the power to deliver you. Amen? It has the power to deliver you. Look at this next scene. The bewildered crowd is amazed at his ability. They sense the authority of his words. Is this some new teaching? And they saw the obedience of the unclean spirits. Look at verse 25. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, or be quiet, and come out of them. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him, and they were all amazed, so that they debated amongst themselves, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands, and even the unclean spirits obey him. Jesus says, Be muzzled. He wants no acknowledgement from their lips. It's a command. The unclean spirit throws the man on the ground, convulsing. It means to tear, to throw into spasms. And they cry with a loud voice. It means to screech. Screams of someone suffering. And, and they scream because they know ultimately they're headed for the lake of fire. But the people see this and they're amazed. It's a different word. The first word means to astonish, to be blown in the mind. This one means to be amazed. It means to be stupefied. It, it, it's the idea of consideration. What? I have no answer for this. What, 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 what's happening? They heard the authority, and their minds were blown. Now they see the ability of the word and the authority of Christ, and they're stupefied. Initially, they were shocked in their senses, but as they observed what took place and considered his teaching, they didn't know what to make of it. It was a little alarming. You ever been around a a believer that's just on fire? 
for the Lord before you came to Christ, and and you're like, man, that's a little weird. I, it's just I don't know what to make of that. It it seems genuine, but 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 I've never experienced anything like that. That that's the idea here. Now look at what they said. What new doctrine is this? It was an acknowledgement that there was something unusual, extraordinary. It was not what they commonly heard. And it was surely not the common results that they saw from the, the, the dead scribes. And they started questioning, wondering who this could be. Robert Moffat, a great Scottish missionary who wrote Come Thou Fount, reached Cape Town, Africa, South Africa, January 13, 1817. And after eight months devoted to the language study, he, he set out into the interior to a particular tribe that, that he had his eye on that was led by a very wicked man, a very wicked leader. His nickname was Afrikaner. He was the most feared and hated man in South, uh, South Africa in, in those days. And before Moffat set out, people warned him, Afrikaner will set you up as a mark for his men to shoot at you. He'll make a drum with to dance with from your skin, and he'll use your skull as a drinking cup. And that's the reputation that, that this guy had. But contrary to those warnings, Moffat enters the tribe, and, and he doesn't get killed. The chief allows him to stay, and he begins to, to in his preaching service and having Sunday school and... and Pretty soon over a hundred children are coming and not long after that the chief himself begins to attend the services regularly. As he begins to listen, he would begin to, to read. He learned to read and then he would read the New Testament for hours at a time and he would sit on a rock outside the missionary's hut and asking questions about God's love and Christ's atonement and the wonders of, of heaven and every day there was a change, there was fresh evidences of that, that God was, was, was bringing the Afrikaner to, to salvation. Where he formerly robbed, he, he now ministered to the needs of people. He once uh, exalted in war, and now he became a peacemaker amongst the tribes. And, and he'd often stand between the tribes on the, on the verge of, of fighting, and, and, and he would say, Oh, the wars I fought and the cattles I took, I, I now have nothing but shame and remorse. And One day while they were talking, Moffat is staring at Afrikaner, and, and, and the man asked him, well, what are, Why are you looking at me like that? Robert Moffat said, Knowing how, how gentle you are now, I'm trying to imagine how it could be true that you ever carried a sword and fire and death through the through the country. This once bloodthirsty chief was been transformed and wept like a child. And after a few years, Moffat took the chief back to Cape Town, back to the people that told him not to go. And he he meets a family, specifically one of the men that 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 warned him. And Moffat begins to relate relate the facts about Afrikaner's conversion. And tells the man, he's a real Christian now. And the, the man replied, that would be the eighth wonder of the world. If what you say is true, I, I would just have one wish, and that's to see him before I died. 
Although he killed my uncle, I would like to see him and talk with him. And, and Moffat said, you'll have your wish sooner than you think. The man standing right over there is Afrikaner. And the farmer drew back and stared at him and lifted up his eyes and said reverently, Oh God, what a miracle of thy power. It is a miracle of God's power that you're sitting here today in your right mind, clothed, listening to the Word of God if you're saved. You're not here because you're smarter than the average bear. You're not here because you're, you're good or gooder. <laughs> You're here because God's Word laid a claim on your life, exposed you, and then did a work in you. And what can you say other than, oh God, what a miracle of your power. The song says, I stand amazed at the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. You know what the rest of it says? I wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. Oh, how marvelous. Oh, how wonderful. And my song shall ever be. Oh, how marvelous. Oh, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Not the Savior's love for everybody else, but my Savior's love for me. Don't just be amazed at his presence or his teaching. Don't just wonder over your sinful condition. Don't be fearful when you're exposed. Marvel at His love that will change you if you will hear His voice and obey it. When was the last time God amazed you? When was the last time that you were amazed by God. Something in His Word, something that He did in your life, something that He did in the lives of others. I'm afraid that we've so insulated ourselves, we've, we've got so many things, we really don't need to be dependent upon God. We don't need to be amazed by God anymore. We, we, can, we can pretty much make it on our own. And yet God is still doing His work. He's still doing amazing things in people and He still wants to do amazing things in you. This is the last time that you saw His ability demonstrated. If it's been a while, it's because you're either not close to His presence or utilizing His Word. Maybe you're approaching the Word like the scribe, something to consider rather than a claim from your Creator on your life. Jesus has power, and He uses it. And His Word changes people. And His Word can change you. The demons knew more about the power and authority of Christ in this passage than many of us do. And that's a sad thing, isn't it? And we might get His title right. We might pray in Jesus' name. But deliverance comes by submitting to His authority. Look at verse 28. It says, And immediately the news about Him spread everywhere into all the surrounding districts of Galilee. Why did the news, why did His fame spread everywhere? Because of the authority of His teaching 
and the ability that it had to change lives. That's exactly what God's given us the command to do. Spread His fame throughout the nations, the authority of His Word, and the power of His changed life. Has He changed your life? If you know Christ, He has. Is He changing your life? Are you being conformed to the image of Christ? That's God's work, but that work comes as you submit to the authority in His Word. Let's sit by your heads. The Bible is the Word of God, and it makes a claim on your life. Who owns your life? Are you a rebel still claiming ownership? Or have you humbly submitted to to Christ as Lord? Exposes you. You can't get away from it. There's no doubt in my mind that there will be people who will leave this place today sadly hearing the voice of God and doing nothing about it, and you will not be able to get away from it. I firmly expect a testimony of someone saying, Pastor, I tried to get away, but I could not get away. God would not lay, would not leave me alone. Why not submit? It has the power to change your life. If you need deliverance, hear the words of Jesus. Come to me and find life. He, he doesn't want your amazement. He wants your allegiance. And if you've ever put your trust in, in Jesus Christ, there's reason for rejoicing. But if you haven't, the fear is real. And it should be. Oh, Father, bring my heart in more submission to Your Word. Help me, Lord, even as I read, even as I preach, to understand that it is the very very words of my Creator that lays claim upon me. Help me, Lord, to submit to it. Help all of us, Father, not to treat the lessons and the sermons that we hear as just something that we can take or leave but as what will change our life if we'll hear and obey. Thank You, Lord, for giving us this, this blessed Word. Thank You, Lord Jesus, for coming and dying that we might have life. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.